What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to be talking with singer-songwriter Rufus Wainwright. I first became aware of Rufus when I heard his cover of the Beatles song, Across the Universe, from the I Am Sam movie soundtrack. I was absolutely blown away. I mean, that voice. And I followed up with picking up his album, Poses. And since then, I feel like his song, Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk, has just been periodically popping in my head for years. What was most compelling about listening to Rufus's music was that it was just dripping with melancholy. It was deep, rich, artistic. I had heard the term Baroque pop used to describe it. And it has that vibe of looking at one of those lush, rich Baroque paintings. You feel like you're not just listening to a song, you're being brought into an emotional world. And he's continued with that vibe on his new album, Unfollow the Rules. So what was interesting to me was that, in theory, the music was kind of dark and melancholy, even sad. But I never felt that way when I was listening. I actually felt kind of calm, contemplative like I could be in the feeling. And this is a powerful effect. Whenever music can bring me into a certain emotional space, I know it's important for me. And I always want to move towards it, listen to it, know more about it, see the artist perform. Now at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you discover your life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. And part of discovering our purpose is trying to understand how we work emotionally, what makes us happy, sad, fulfilled, or empty. When we understand how we work emotionally, it can be very validating. And this connection can help guide us in terms of how we want to organize and pursue our best life. Maybe we want to dedicate more time to listening to, learning about, or even making music. Now, many people don't immediately assume that darker music can feel good. So they may try to dissuade themselves or others from listening to darker music. But then, many of us wouldn't have the opportunity to connect with something that feels very real and comforting to us. So I wanted to learn more about how Rufus understood and connected with these darker emotions and how we could do the same. So let's hear what Rufus has to say. Thanks so much for being here. Hello, good to be here. And so we're going to talk about a topic that I think is of interest to a lot of people, and I think that you're particularly well-suited to discuss, which is the concept of how we experience and express darkness in its various forms, whether it's sadness or anger or outrage, whatever it may be. And I think that one of the reasons why I thought you would be so good for this is because I've always felt when I've listened to your music that it somehow winds up being an engine by which I come in very dark and I feel like I connect with a certain dark emotion of the music and yet somehow I come out feeling better, yeah. which is not <laughs> typically, you know, which is, which is not always, yeah. I mean, for, for me, it's, it's how it tends to go, but that's not the case for all people. And yeah. so I feel like that that's, at least from my perspective, one of your artistic yeah. gifts. And oh, well, thank you. Just, you know, so yeah, I well, you know, it, yeah. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I basically come from an interesting generation of male singer-songwriters, meaning that, you know, when I started my career, there was actually a rather high percentage of, of really doomed characters. People like Jeff Buckley, Elliot Smith, Kurt Cobain. I mean, that was all kind of around the time that I began as well. 
And I was always struck at that at, at, during that period in you know the 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 nineties at how how amazing their music was, but also how kind of nihilistic and really how can I say that enveloped in darkness, which I was a little frankly I was a little jealous of, you know, because I found that with my own work, what I tended to do was to kind of get into the darkness, but then but then by the same token, try to get out of it. <laughs> you know, I would always search for the light. I would always search for the, you know, the silver lining and so forth. I don't know where that came from, but it was very obvious to me in that period, especially because, you know, a lot of those guys died and I seemed to want to survive. So I guess in a weird way, it's, I think it's just, I think it's, a lot of it has to do with survival. <laughs> well, you know, let's, let's go back to the, to the foundation, to the yes. origin, you know, do you remember when you first noticing that, you know, just darkness was something that you experienced? Well, I mean, I, and, and I'm a 47 year old gay man. And, and really, if you look at kind of history and, and, and where that places me, and, and also the fact that I, I came out to myself anyways, when I was very young, I was about. 13, that smack at the time when AIDS was ravaging the gay population, the gay male population. I was very aware of that. And, and it really, you know, it kind of hit me right at puberty, you know, right when I was supposed to have this glorious awakening and, and experience this kind of innocent or loss of innocence in a kind of innocent way, shall we say, it was really shadowed by the shadow of death. And literally, you know what I mean? You know, because after my first sexual experiences at that age, I was very young. I was convinced, you know, for a good 10 years that I was HIV positive. I was too afraid to get tested. You know, I basically thought I was going to die every week. So that, that very much kind of formed my, uh, my early concept of the world and also my art. And I think I was just always trying to mill that over in my work, mull that over, sorry. And yeah, so, so I think a lot of it comes from the AIDS crisis for me. Now, now, for a lot of people, I mean, I think that for the LGBTQ community, there's still a lot of bias. There's still a lot of prejudice. There's still a lot of difficulty, people coming out. You know, I, a, yeah. a lot of my work is, is helping people come out or transition. Yeah. But it's, it's, I, would, I would have to say that yeah. at least on some level, it's better now than it was before. Yeah. And so, yeah. you yeah. know, maybe well, take yeah. people back to what it was like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really brutal in the sense that, you couldn't talk about it to anybody. There was nothing in high schools, for instance, to address the issue if you were gay. Like I remember when I was around 10 or 11 being in school and AIDS was ravaging, as I said before, was ravaging the, the gay male population. And teachers, a couple of teachers would say, oh, yeah, well, they deserve it because, you know, they're having anal sex and that's bad. And, and also like my parents who were very liberal in general and even had gay friends, let's say, but they were they were still kind of, um, how can I say this? There was a certain homophobia embedded in their world, in their minds. So there was that. And then, and then there was, I, I guess, you know, even when you think of like film and television, I mean, that was still such a rare sighting, you know, seeing, you know, two men kiss, that just didn't exist. And and if people got AIDS, you know, you didn't want to touch them. So it was a shit show, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting because it speaks to how powerful it is in terms of media representation, but also in terms of when, when anyone who is part of authority expresses those views. You know, when you're, when you're a 13-year-old kid, you don't have perspective. You don't, you don't realize that, like, well, some teachers are one way and other teachers are another way. Like, that isolation can be powerful. Yeah, yeah. no, the isolation was bad. And it was sort of, I mean, okay. But I, I mean, I like to sort of 
I think you also have to put it in another context where on one hand, there were not a lot of outlets, there wasn't a lot of support, and there was a lot of violence, you know, uh, around it. But then there was also this incredible scene. There was this real underground, very luscious, very interesting, very appealing, very loving gay scene that, that had this sort of real passion there. And, and, and there was a sort of camaraderie amongst those who felt, you know, this, this oppression that, uh, that, you know, I, in retrospect, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And I do feel like sometimes like now that's sort of what, what's missing <laughs> a little bit in, in, in the LGBT community in, in certain sectors, especially like gay white males. It can get a little bit too, uh, I don't know, transaction and nary or something <laughs> when you yeah. come out these days, but whatever. But it was so, so I think it was a kind of a double-edged sword at that time. Yeah, well, it's interesting because one of the things about darkness as a concept is that it can be so horrible and yet it can produce, it can destroy you, but yeah. it can also produce tremendous empathy if you get yes. through. Yes, yes. Tremendous empathy and also strength. You know, I mean, I mean, I celebrate the fact that, that I, you know, went through this, this, this tricky time in my early years as one of the main ingredients of, of how I've been able to survive artistically up until now, you know, and, and really, you know, strive for, for difficult things because, you know, I was familiar with turmoil early on. You talked about that and you've talked about that, the darkness, but then wanting some kind of light or some kind of, I don't know if escape is the right word, but some kind of balance. Did you feel as though you wanted artistically to stay more in the darkness? No, I needed to get out of the darkness. It was true darkness. I mean, this wasn't malaise. This wasn't a sort of disappointment with my suburban upbringing. And it was coming from a, a, a real danger. I mean, I feel like perhaps, and I like to refer to other artists from the period. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying that, you know, Kirk Cobain and Elliot Smith and Jeff Buckley, you know, had like really tough childhoods and really went through a lot of crap. But I don't think any of those figures who ended up sort of succumbing to the darkness were actually faced like I was at the age of 13 with, you know, a death sentence, essentially, where if you were gay, it was basically expected that you would die. So I just felt really faced with, with this real specter of, of annihilation. And, 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 and therefore, for me to search for the light was, was a visceral necessity. <laughs> In no way do I want to applaud the, the AIDS epidemic. But, but I will say that for me, it really, because it hit me at such a, a vulnerable time and when I was hit, hitting puberty, it just infused me with this desire to survive and to, and, to, and to stick around and to not play with death, you know? And I, you know, and I'm someone who suffers from addiction as well. So it was all like, it was an interesting period. <laughs> do, do you want to talk about that just in terms of what you went through with addiction and how that came about? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I mean, my story is, is like so many others. I mean, it's just, it's something that's run in, run in my family for years. And, and it's something that, you know, I immediately gravitated towards substances. And I just kind of never had a sense that, that one should, you know, regulate it. <laughs> and thankfully, I, you know, it just, it was, it was a fun ride for a long time, really up until my late 20s. And then I had to really switch paths. And I will say that, you know, once I did, go away to rehab. I went to Hazelden in Minnesota. I was struck by a kind of differentiation between me and some other people. And, and, and 
not not so much me and everybody else, but there were certain groups of people that fared better than others. And I realized that a lot of the people who really didn't do well and who were really at a much higher dangerous risk were really people who had experienced neglect and who had, you know, these terrible parents. <laughs> and, you know, my parents weren't, were, weren't perfect by any means, but, but I did realize that I had this fundamental of love, this fundamental love connection with my, with my family. And, and, that, and that made things, I think, a lot easier to, uh, to move forward. Yeah, you know, love is very important. Yeah, I mean, let's let's go back to that 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 concept because so many people are faced with something that's in front of them that, in some cases, does feel insurmountable. And they, you know, like so as, as an example, yeah, theory. And I, I wouldn't recommend this for anyone, but in theory, there was there was a pressure to say, well, if I if I don't come out, I can avoid some of this you know, some of this bias, I can, I can avoid some of these risks. And what I'm always fascinated by is how people knew how to follow their more authentic path, because there's a lot of pressure to do otherwise. And so for you back then, like, what was it that made you say, listen, no, I'm, I'm, I know I'm getting all this pressure. I know there's this fear out there, but this is me and and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say that it's, I credit a lot of my kind of development, both both as a person and as an artist, to opera and the operatic kind of ethos that I gravitated towards at around the time I was coming out when I was 13. And that basically is that there has to be a kind of cataclysmic shift that occurs, you know, this whole concept of just keeping it pent up or not, you know, expressing yourself or of life not being that dramatic just doesn't work in that in that frame of mind and and I think I don't know there was just I, I kind of knew instinctively and opera really sent me that message as well that you know you have to truth must be revealed <laughs> and there has to be a kind of transcendency there has to be a sort of rebirth I guess in everything you know you do whether it's your life or your art so so opera kind of really led the way for me because if you look listen to most operas it, it is about this kind of transformation that the characters go through where they are either, you know, are completely either devastated or, or they're renewed. And, but whatever it is that happens has to be, you know, of the utmost intensity. <laughs> and so I just, I kind of followed that, that path. That's fascinating to me as somebody who's not as familiar with opera as, yeah. a, as a culture. And I'm, I'm yeah. curious, was that something that you in retrospect, you're kind of like, I realized that I was able to come out more because of that? Or did you actually stop and say to yourself, look, the world of opera does this, and now I'm going to do that as well? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a combination of things. I mean, one is that because I, you know, as I said before, when I was, when I was coming out to myself, I didn't come out to my family, but but when I knew I was gay, I was 13. And that was, you know, that was 1987. And that was, very much still in the uh, in the old world, shall we say, of, of homosexual culture, and and at that point, still opera was the real beacon of of hope for especially gay men, as it had been for hundreds of years. So you know, the opera was always a place that traditionally gay men went to. So I was sort of still I found myself following that tradition. But that being said, I think as an artist, because I knew that I would you know that I would be in music and that I would want to compose music, I felt that it was, you know, this wasn't just me hanging out with a bunch of opera queens. It was also me, you know, looking at these works 
by these great composers and realizing that the whole point of that kind of exercise is to really shatter the audience and, and, and really have them go through an experience that they'll never forget. And, and, and I guess it corresponded to, to a lot of aspects of my life where I realized that I was either going to die or live. <laughs> and whatever it is, I needed, that, I needed that strength and that kind of frenetic energy to continue. I, there was no being subtle about anything. <laughs> and and so it's interesting that you say that frenetic energy. And so you you felt like opera, again, this is coming from someone who's not as familiar with it. You yeah. feel like opera kind of provided that yeah. intensity, if you will. Yes. And and it's funny because it's even, it provided that intensity. And I think that that, that was it also, aside from the gay thing, I mean, at that period in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, there was also a bit of a rift in terms of, you know, popular music with people like Kurt Cobain and grunge, where, where I think a lot of young people felt this need to really bust out of the cheesy 80s Americana kind of uh, cesspool <laughs> that the pop world had become. You know, there was this, there was a more nihilistic leaning. And, and opera, I think, it, for me, was very equated a bit with, with the grunge movement that a lot of my contemporaries were going through. You just needed that more. It had to, had to be deeper. Well, it's, it's when, you're, when you're talking about it now, again, that transition, that kind of someone emerging, kind of like a phoenix from the ashes vibe that, that does now that you're describing it, yeah. like feel a lot like what I heard in grunge. You know, that was a lot of the themes, at least emotionally. Yeah, yeah, no, like. no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, there was this, and I even, you know, there was bands that I loved at that point that I still love, you know, Sonic Youth and the Pixies and stuff. So I, I, I knew what was going on. Yeah, and it actually related to, you know, the 60s, too, in the sense, I mean, where I wasn't around in the 60s, but there was a big, when Maria Callas was singing, you know, a lot of people would go to, you know, who loved the Rolling Stones would also love Maria Callas, you know, so it was sort of, it was just an intense time. Yeah, and so, you know, maybe we could use that as a transition, just in terms of your own musical style. I've heard the term Baroque pop applied to you. I don't know where that came from, but it sounded right to me, because like, I not to go too into the weeds, but it's like, there is a kind of like Caravaggio painting vibe right. to, to your music, like a lot of crimsons and yeah. like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. a lot of bold yeah. colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I, I'm very dramatic. I mean, I love drama and I say this in the best way. I mean, it's not, I, I don't mean like I'm trying to be over the top or anything, though I, I have been, I've been accused used of that at times but i mean more like the real you know the greek sense of the word where i I like to set up a construct that really engages the kind of dramatic side of the brain and grasps the listener and forces them through this journey and that has served me well and it's also hindered me you know i mean like there's a reason why i mean i've had a lot of songs movies and stuff but i don't know like a lot of my music is, is often too gripping and i say this not because it's necessarily good it's just it just demands a lot of attention in a like a movie context so it's it's something that i don't know for better or worse i do well you know it's it's interesting that you say that because if you don't mind i'd like to talk a little bit about across the universe because yeah. that was actually where i first kind of like became a little bit immersed in your music what was right. so fascinating about that song and in see with these themes was it's like you said it was like i had to listen to it like you can't you, it wasn't a background song right. you know yeah. what i mean but the thing yeah. that in retrospect yeah. that i yeah. and i don't know if this was the original intention of the song or if this was just the way that you sang it was this feeling like the, the nothing's going to change my world the kind of like is that a good thing or right. is that a bad thing or is it both 
It's a bit of both. I mean, in the sense that, you know, like I have a, I have this friend, a fellow musician, you know, this guy, Sufjan Stevens, is a, you know, a great musician, great songwriter, but he has this wonderful capacity to write pieces that on one hand, you know, you can kind of fit over any context, you know, you can put it in front, it could be like a, a, a super duper, how can I, this a very emotional journey in, in the soul, or it can be a car commercial. <laughs> it's very versatile. My music is not like that. It either works perfectly with what's happening or it detracts from what's going on. I think it, it works both ways. It's, it's served me very well and it's also kind of hindered me in other ways. You mean because you feel like just it's not as many people are able to... Well, I guess maybe it's not as commercial, I guess is what we might say. Yeah, it's not as commercial, but it's also not as, how can I say it? I don't want to say, I don't want to be mean. It's not as vapid <laughs> as sometimes pop music can get, you know, or, or I guess what it is, is that when I started, when I started out, I, my intention was to not sound like anybody else. That was what I wanted to do. That was my game plan. And in the end of the day, I think it served me well because I survived. But that being said, I took a hit because what I immediately realized after embarking on on this journey was that the idea is to sound like everybody else it is to sort of fit into this movement or fit into this genre and you know so they know where to put you in the cd shelf remember cd shelves anyways but um and i just i just was never they were never able to define me and and that's and, that, and as i said it's it's a good thing and, and, it, and it's also been challenging well, you know, that the time where I realized, I, I, I didn't think about it until you just said it, but there's only been a couple of songs in my life where I heard them once and I don't remember where they came from, but they resonated. And one, one of them was Please, Please, Please from the Smiths. And it just, oh, I just yes. remember like in retrospect, it was probably from Pretty in Pink. And I just, it just like stayed with me, but I didn't even know, I didn't even think about like who sang it or like what the words were or yeah. anything like that. And, and it was interesting because cigarettes and chocolate milk was like that for me where i would just be oh. in fact <laughs> when we were originally gonna gonna talk i think i said it to you before i'm just like every once in a while i just find myself like humming the melody and i'm just like i didn't even remember until you and i were gonna interview that that's where it came from and on this point of like making things yeah. more dramatic it's like just when you think about the energy of the song versus the words, at least the like the cigarettes and chocolate milk, like that should not have weight in theory, but it does yeah. <laughs> for some reason. Like, do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. like I'm sitting there thinking like, is this good? Is this like, are, are we psyched about right. this? Or are we not psyched about this? Because <laughs> in theory we yeah, should be, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I don't like cigarettes, but the chocolate milk part was like very good. So I was like, this should yeah, be something yeah, yeah. psyched yeah. about, but it wasn't quite that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well. I mean, that song is, is definitely imbued with a with a with a very dark undercurrent and a kind of. I'm walking a, a, a type of tightrope, where you know, on one hand, you know, it's kind of celebratory. You do get the sense that I can, you know, just crumble any minute, and well, uh, and that's in fact what what occurred. You know, that's what occurred. Yeah. What what when you say that's what occurred? Is that was that at a particular time in your life? That song when something was yeah was I mean the, I mean that that album that that was my second album poses and something in that record that all of these elements are are uh, kind of conspiring together to uh, create this very unique kind of atmosphere on one hand you know because I was sort of I was brazenly enjoying my youth and and that that's a good thing but but then there's you know the reality of of what that entails when they're doing lots of bad things 
I remember, yeah, I remember buying it because I was living, I was living in the West Village. I was like right around Leroy and between Bleecker and Bedford, and there was a record store on Bleecker. And I remember actually going and coming back and listening to it. And even at that point, I remember being like, "Why is this? This is hitting me for some reason." Like I was, I was single, and like I was kind of, you know, I was going out a lot, maybe too much, but it was fun, but it wasn't really yeah. good. And I remember yeah. sitting there listening to yeah. it and be like, and like, yeah. I don't even. I was, and to be honest, I was, I was like, I don't even really know what he's saying. Not because you weren't clear in your words, because I wasn't. Yeah. But the it hit me in the right way. Uh, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, <laughs> this guy gets yeah. me for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's a yeah, good thing or a yeah, bad thing, yeah, but no, he gets it, what I'm at. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. No, it was, it was, you know, I, th- I think when my next album came out, one and the want records, I mean, those were much more deliberate, kind of assertive and, you know, cause I, I, at that point I had been in rehab and I was, I was really, it was about kind of survival and looking forward. There was this kind of delicate, very brief moment of confusion and kind of decadence that you can't really recapture, you know, and you can't really recreate. But thank, thankfully, I made a record at that time, and it'll always have that spirit, which I'm happy about. Well, no, and it is because, and it gets back again to that darkness and empathy thing, because like when we were, I was prepping for the interview, like I was listening to it and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, and it's like just knowing that there's someone yeah. out there, even if it's someone you don't know, even just knowing that there's someone out there yeah. and you, you can't even confirm that they know what you're going through, but it feels that way. It matters a lot because I think that, you know, again, it's that thing where sometimes you're in that zone where it's just like, you just want to think that like one person gets you, even if it's someone you don't know, even if you don't know that they get you, something to hang on to. Well, I was there. I was also very, the other thing that I did a lot with my songs, and this is something that I've always done and and it continues to this day, is that I'm really expressing my inner feelings. I am not trying to relate to anybody. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to capture the mood of the young or anything. I am just processing what I go through in my life. And in an odd way, I mean, some people get it and, and some people don't. It goes right to, the, to their core because it is, they're ready to communicate in that way. It's, it's kind of like punk in that way. Like when I think of punk, I think of like Alan Vega, of yeah. suicide, something where there's like, yeah. you know, there just, there's something about this person. There's something coming out of them artistically that is making you feel a certain way. But if they were trying to do it, like if you got the sense, even for a moment that their intention was to piss you off, it wouldn't have the same effect. With Mitchell Froome, who I worked with on this album, great producer. And I, I'm a big Randy Newman fan. And I, he basically alerted me that none of Randy Newman's songs have anything to do with his life. <laughs> like he intentionally creates these kind of vignettes that are so divorced from anything in his personal world. And that, and that I find truly fascinating. It's the antithesis of, of how I do it. And anybody, everybody in my family, whether it's my father or my mother, or my sisters, but I do admire, you know, so I think it can go several ways, but that's the, the path I'm on. So. Yeah, so so speaking of path, let's let's talk about the new album and and how all of that goes into yes. this album and this time in the world and all that. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting <laughs> time, <laughs> an interesting world at the moment. I mean, unfollow the rules is for me as a kind of bookend to to my first album, Rufus Wainwright, which I made in LA over twenty years ago, and uh, you know now I'm I'm living in in Los Angeles again and. And I went to a lot of the same studios that I recorded in years ago and, and worked with even some of the same musicians and also with, you know, younger 
players and stuff. And I think for me, it's a kind of, how can I say this? It's, it's like I'm tying a bow, you know, around the first act of my uh, artistic career. I hope there's three acts. <laughs> there could only be two, but, but I do feel that, that nonetheless, this, this album represents a sort of finale to my early career. And now, you know, being a father, being, being married, being a little wiser, a little, a little more adept, you know, and having a little less time <laughs> to sort of flail around, we'll see what comes up next. <laughs> do, do you feel like being married and being a parent is that make it, I don't know if it's harder or is, is, is darkness less accessible no. in that context? No, no. I mean, because the other thing is that, you know, you're sort of, I don't know. I, I am amazed at how delicate life is, you know, uh, the older that I get and how much more sensitive I become. I mean, the, the darkest days I've ever experienced are really around, you know, when my mother died. And that just made me more emotional <laughs> afterwards. So I, I was talking to my engineer the other day and uh, my friend Chris Storm, and he was saying, and and I do believe this with my career and where where I'm going, is that I'm one of the few artists (laughs) who's been able to, for better or for worse, really try to get better with age in the sense that there's a, I don't know, I think a lot of it has to do with my singing. I mean, I think my singing now is better than it's ever been. But also in terms of, you know, trying to write operas, trying to, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to get a commission from a, from a classical symphony to write a requiem. I mean, I've, I've always tried to stretch, push the envelope, shall we say. And maybe because I've never had, you know, huge hits in the past, like I don't feel like I have to repeat those periods. So I don't know. It's, I want it better and more profound uh, the older I get until, you know. Beethoven, right before he died, he tried to he tried to conduct the thunder, you know. So here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon as I said that, I like all my all my married friends with kids are going to be like, "Wait, you think marriage with kids protects against darkness?" I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Oh Have you been listening no, to us? <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. Our daughter Viva, she's she's nine years old, and and seeing what you know the world that she's about to inherit and what's going on around us is pretty frightening, you know? Yeah. I find the whole thing is kind of like, it's almost like re-traumatizing. Like I think of every little thing that I ever went through and I see if it happens in my kids and I feel like it's just, it's like 10 times worse. I mean, I I felt like it was bad when I went through it, but it like, not like that, like not, not like if I see it. And by the way, like I didn't have that much happen and it was still, it was still horrible, like in a lot of ways. And so I find that I, as much as I want to be positive and whatever, at times, it's it's tough, you know, because it yeah. hurts so much. Yeah, no, it's very tough. Yeah, I think you just got to count your blessings at the end of the day. <laughs> it's true. So let me just ask you if if it's okay. I have one one final thing, and then we could talk about anything else you want to talk about. But I was really struck with "Alone Time," as which I I yes. believe is the final song. And I'm I I don't know if you feel yes. comfortable talking about this, but it basically felt to me. It's not like, don't worry, baby, I'll be back. It's more like, listen, this is the real me. This is the raw, bad me. Right. And don't worry, baby, I'll be back. Like, on the one hand, it could have been heard like, it'll be okay. But on the other hand, it's like, don't worry, I'm going to put the mask back up. And like this phony world that you live in where I'm doing okay, which gives you comfort, is going to still be there. And and again, if you feel comfortable talking about it, I'm kind of curious about that song. Because that hit me in a similar way to some yeah. of the other songs that you've yeah. done that I really love. Yeah. Well, that song is definitely a, a reveal <laughs> in the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're constantly, 
drawn to, you know, the darker regions of, of the world. And you, you know, you kind of play with the more kind of combustible elements <laughs> that exist. Like you have to go there to get, you know, inspired and you don't have to partake necessarily. You don't have to be present, but nonetheless, the imagination is, is incessant. And, and it's sort of, the devil is a friend at times <laughs> when, when you're a songwriter. And, and that's just like part of the way the, the machine works. So it's, uh, yes, and it's something that I have to, you know, on one hand, you know, play with and also, you know, put back in its cage everywhere. <laughs> I think it's how a lot of, yeah, I think it's how a lot of people who struggle with mental illness feel, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I can show you enough of it so that you understand that I'm going through something, but I can't really show you everything. Yeah. And it's exhausting, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, the thing about it too, is that, I mean, what I've experienced, and this is, you know, getting back to mental health but in a heavy way is that, is that I've found that I mean, unless I was on medication or something, which I'm not, if I kind of discard or try to annihilate my darker kind of imagination and, you know, not sort of play ball with that, with that world occasionally, not all the time, but just if I don't kind of give it its due occasionally, mentally, I would suffer from extreme depression. (laughs) You know, there's a kind of life force that comes out of that whatever yang or ying or whatever the darker side and it's just if you kind of deny it then it'll it'll really kind of take you down and but then also you can't you know give into it at the same time so it's like a hard it's a hard to wrestle well that's i think that's one of the toughest things about being an artist and obviously people look in and they say oh being an artist that's a you know it's not like this job that job and it's 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 not obviously like it's it's a wonderful career if if you're if you're good enough to do it but there's all this evidence that yeah. expression, artistic, writing, creative is healthy for you. But I don't think people fully can grasp that walking that line, like you're saying, you just never know when you're going to yeah. slip. And I don't think as a society, we have a lot of recognition yeah. that that's what we demand of our artists. Like we demand no. that they be like fully like embracing the darkness. And otherwise we say like, oh, you, yeah. you lost your edge yeah. or you're, you're yeah. sold out. But then like if they fall yeah. into depression or addiction, we're like, oh, you see? I knew they were crazy yeah, the whole time. Yeah, no, I know. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I was just, you know, my husband, he, he works a lot with, he, he's from Europe, he's from Germany, and we work together, but he's also worked in other capacities in the theater. And, you know, we were talking today about how, you know, in Germany and Austria, they are now going to support all the theaters. They like that for, for the amount of losses that they're going to take. The government will supplement those losses with money for all the seats that can't be, you know, bought because of COVID. And it's amazing because it is, it is this, there is a real lack, and especially in the United States, of what it takes to be an artist and what an artist has to go through to create beautiful work that really, you know, betters the world and gives people a kind of sense of, of humanity. And and it's sort of it's yeah it's 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 really jaw dropping sometimes how 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 that that you know that that misunderstanding it's just is so uh, blatant and so yeah it's hard <laughs> no it's hard because I mean look and I you know obviously I think that anybody would say well look if there's money you know to go to if if there was a vaccine that was working or treatment for people you know or hospital beds of course there there are yes. things that are that are immediate but i think there's becoming more of a recognition of the importance of mental health and yeah. i think there's also becoming more of a recognition of how important the arts are to cuz almost everybody has some version of arts that 
that that gets them in a better place. You know, yeah. they, it's not not everybody, but but like yeah. most people have a TV show or a movie yeah. or, or music or even if it's just yeah. entertainment like sports or something. Yeah. And and I I think that people are slowly recognizing Especially now, I think it's going to be important because there's all these decisions being made about funding and stuff like yeah. that. Like, yeah. look, we need we need our art to yeah. connect us and yeah. to connect us with ourselves, connect us and with lo- and, and look and look and look at uh, what it's like for for people who don't have art and culture in their lives. I mean, look at the Republican Party, look at the RNC. I mean, it's just there's it's just devoid of any compassion <laughs> or any, any kind of you know empathy and any kind of you know desire to better the world i mean it's like it's just so glacial so it's we need well one of the, i mean one of the things that i've always been so impressed by is you know i think a lot of artists are are talking about this now is you can have people from all these different backgrounds all these different cultures all these different political perspectives mm-hmm. but somehow you know i see it a lot in like the metal community the heavy metal community is where everybody when they come together in that world all of a sudden all that stuff gets left at the door at least yeah. for and and look, it's is it is it saving the world necessarily? Not not right away, but it's like. No. But I think I think that if people picked up on the fact that like, look, that's a something, that's a beginning, you know, like where people can come together because there aren't that yeah. many things that we agree on. But a lot of times, like music, can be one of them. Yes, yes, yeah. No, it can be. It can be. But yeah, we're gonna need more than music, though. Sadly. <laughs> we are indeed. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to misunderstand. Music. Music can save the world, but not not immediately. Yeah. yeah. So. No, no, not not right away. Uh, well, listen. Absolutely thrilled to talk to you, and thank uh, you. You know, best of luck, and I hope as you're doing more in your career, if the opportunity ever arises, please uh, come back on the show. We'd love to have you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Take Take care. care. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Rufus Wainwright talking about how he understands and manages his darker emotions. One of the things I loved about Rufus's insights was his willingness to talk about how fragile we can be emotionally and how dangerous it may be for some of us to explore darkness. Many of us find it validating and soothing. And I often feel that way when listening to Rufus's music. But he was careful to say that he himself needs to tread lightly because exploring this type of darkness may be triggering. And those of us who struggle with depression, addiction, or trauma may want to be more deliberate in how we tackle these deeper, darker emotions. One take-home technique that we may want to try when we are exploring darker emotions is to be open to exploration through music or other art forms. But if it feels like it's too much and it may drag us under, we can always pull back a bit until we feel prepared to try again. Remember, the emotions are there, and we need to be curious enough to explore them, but kind enough to ourselves to do it in a way that's not overwhelming or harmful. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite app, Give us a rating and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.